Hello, my name is Basha Ketkin. And I'm Kostya Gorobets. Welcome to Borderline Jurisprudence. In this podcast, we are talking about jurisprudence and philosophy of international law. The podcast is everything a jurisprudence geek interested in international law or an international law geek interested in jurisprudence wants. The idea of the podcast is to discuss things that lay at the overlap of jurisprudence and international legal theory. We seek to settle it once and for all. Is international law a borderline case of law or not? Just kidding. Of course it's not. The podcast will feature fascinating guests discussing ideas, books, articles, or anything that fits within the material jurisdiction. Oh, I'm sorry. I mean the subject matter of the podcast. Episodes are bound to be released bi-weekly, but this is subject to modification in a very limited and specific way. Find us on Twitter at Borderline Jurisprudence or send us an email at borderlinejurisprudence at gmail.com. We're new and we're excited about this podcast, so we'd love to hear your thoughts. Lately, more and more attention is getting paid to jurisprudential issues of legality, normativity, and authority of international law. David Levkovitz, professor of philosophy and philosophy, politics, economics, and law at University of Richmond, who is our first guest, offers an insightful perspective on this in his recent book, Philosophy and International Law, a critical introduction. David Levkovitz, welcome to Borderline Jurisprudence. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here and very excited about this project. Great. Uh, so once again, welcome. Uh, and as this is the first episode, we will ask, we will be asking the um, maybe obvious questions. Uh, and the first one is, why do you think philosophy of international law is booming again? And why now? Because it seems that the questions about legality and normative characteristics characteristics of international law were put aside for a couple of decades, but now there's an increasing attention to them again. Is this a sign of a paradigm shift or is it that international legal scholarship has become more susceptible to jurisprudential ideas? Yeah, I, I think it's an excellent question. And uh, I really think that there are a whole host of factors uh, that explain this kind of uh, surge of interest in, in philosophy of international law. Um, and so I kind of want to run down a list of them. Uh, so the first I would say are really just developments of international law, the international legal order following the end of the Cold War. Uh, and so those include uh, some familiar um, things uh, like uh, the development of international criminal law, uh, first in the form of ad hoc tribunals in Rwanda and uh, the former Yugoslavia, and then of course the uh, creation of the International Criminal Court. Uh, the creation of the World Trade Organization and um, the uh, development over time of uh, jurisprudence by the uh, dispute settlement body uh, of WTO. Um, certainly the growth of international human rights law and uh, the various ways in which uh, that was influential or incorporated into domestic legal orders. Uh, so, um, and I think that was, that was significant in two ways. Um, on the one hand, it gave uh, philosophers and philosophically inclined international legal theorists uh, more to talk about. Uh, and so that was just you know, one reason for heightened interest. Uh, and on the other hand, I think it also made the international legal order look in some ways a little bit more like a familiar domestic legal order of a moderately well-functioning modern state. Uh, and so in that, in that sense, it looked both like a target of greater interest and maybe one that was easier to uh, access if you were not initially familiar with, uh, with international law. 
I think also uh, a growth amongst uh, philosophers and an interest in global justice. Um, so certainly kind of general questions of distributive justice, um, but also um, more specific questions having to do with the just conduct of war or uh, the morality of secession, uh, the morality of borders. Now, a lot of that literature and a lot of those discussions didn't speak directly to international law. And in fact, oftentimes when it did speak directly to international law, it did so in a way that was that was pretty ignorant uh, and uh, both of, of the facts and of the possibilities uh, for uh, the development of international law. But nevertheless, um, that literature did help, I think, to put these questions of international law on the table. Uh, and then especially as younger scholars came along and really started to pursue those issues in greater detail, uh, we, I'll, I'll still label myself uh, part of the younger uh, legal scholars, we were uh, you know, interested and in, in willing to kind of dig into the details of the international legal order and start to think through more systematically uh, some of the legal philosophical questions that were kind of implicated by these debates about global justice. Um, so a couple other factors I'll just mention. Uh, there was a growth of uh, philosophical work on specific legal regimes in the domestic context. So a, a huge, really explosion of work in the philosophy of criminal law, um, but also uh, to a lesser extent, uh, work by philosophers and, and philosophically inclined legal theorists on property law, on contract law. So uh, this idea of, of pursuing philosophical investigations of questions beyond the kind of basic questions of the nature of law, law's normativity, the rule of law. And uh, so like that, again, I think just created a space in which there was more opportunity and interest in um, theorizing international law. And then two, two last things. One is um, I think the internationalization of the field of analytic legal philosophy um, is really significant here. And a real uptick in the number of students um, coming from non-Anglo uh, countries um, or backgrounds uh, and coming in with different interests than the ones that had kind of motivated uh, previous generations of, of analytic uh, legal philosophers, familiarity with different traditions, uh, much more interested in, in international law because if you come from the United States, you don't need to pay that much attention to international law, or at least so we think uh, so often. Uh, whereas if you're coming from a smaller country in Latin America, uh, in Europe, um, especially with development of the European Union, the idea of looking to international institutions is, is just a natural one. And then finally, we started looking at some of these questions and it turns out it was fascinating. And we saw there's lots of room here for uh, new questions, for revisiting old questions. So kind of having put a toe in the water, we found that it was uh, incredibly rewarding. And uh, so that kind of drew us in to, to uh, do even more work. Great. I think Kostya and I are maybe examples of these non-US based um, analytical uh, legal scholars to be. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and um, are these the reasons that led you to write your book, uh, Philosophy of an International Law, a Critical Introduction, which came out recently in October 2020? Yes, that's right. Uh, you know, my immediate motivations uh, were two. The first is that for a number of years, I had been teaching uh, two different courses uh, here at my undergraduate institution, uh, the University of Richmond. Uh, and uh, one of them was a kind of traditional philosophy of law class, but I was raising these traditional questions about the nature of law, rule of law, legitimate authority in the context of international law. 
Uh, and having mostly American students, that was a bit of a challenge because we first had to learn a little bit about uh, international law. But um, I found the conversations were much more productive. Um, it was easier for the students to actually grapple with questions about, say, the relationship between enforcement and legality when we pose those questions in the context of international law, rather than raising them against an implicit assumption of background of, of law as it, as it exists in the United States. Uh, I was also teaching an interdisciplinary course in the philosophy of politics and economics program um, here at UR. Uh, and there we were drawing on an even broader range of theoretical perspectives. So economic analyses of international law and constructivist uh, analyses of international law, and then also the philosophical uh, analyses. And again, I found that the conversation was productive and engaging in ways that were different than uh, what I had experienced when we, we kind of implicitly were assuming a background of domestic law. And almost always that means US domestic law for my, for my students. So that was part of my motivation. I was just having so much fun with it. Uh, and I wanted to uh, you know, uh, share some of what we were doing um, with others. Uh, but also I thought that work on uh, philosophy of international law had reached an inflection point where there was enough high quality work being done by theorists on a broad range of questions, both general jurisprudential questions and also specific to uh, international legal regimes like trade law, like criminal law, like human rights, international human rights law, where um, this was a good time to kind of try to pull some of that work together, present it in a way that I hope is accessible and systematic um, to I think, again, I aspire to provide a kind of jumping off point um, for people like you and people uh, to follow you, um, even, of course, if it ends up being, well, you know, Lefkowitz totally got this wrong when he, he, he said this, uh, but at least there would be one place uh, we could go and we could say, well, um, again, the, the image of putting a toe in the water, this would be a great place to put a toe in the water that would get people excited and say, I want to do more of this. Uh, and so that's really what I aspire to do in that book. And you certainly did. I greatly enjoyed reading your book. I just finished it uh, today, actually. And um, yeah, it, it was a great joy reading it because you do combine like traditional jurisprudential perspectives with analyzing different regimes. And that gives a lot of uh, food for thought. And but I would like to start with this more jurisprudential part of your book. So you started with an overview of ideas about the nature of international law, and you speak of us in heart and working, and you very convincingly rebut anti-heart uh, skeptics and show that Hart's understanding of international law is much more convincing than international lawyers and legal philosophers typically think of it. But then you shift to working and rebut his critics as well. And while reading your book, I got this impression that you built your further discussion more on working paradigm with an emphasis on the international rule of law and legitimacy. So can we say that you preferred working over hard for the purposes of philosophy of international law? Yeah, so that's a good question. Um, I'm not ready to commit <laughs> to, uh, to either side. Um, and uh, you know, certainly this is partly a feature of the book. So I did want the book to be, uh, while uh, to take positions and advance debates and, and in particular to rebut what I think are mistaken views, uh, be they about Hart's take on international law or Dworkin's, uh, I did also wanna leave it open, um, again, inviting uh, the reader to kind of pursue these questions at, at uh, further length. Um, 
And, you know, for example, the chapter on legitimacy uh, or legitimate authority, uh, if we want to distinguish that, um, most of that, in fact, presumes a legal positivist account of, uh, of the nature of law um, and then looks at uh, a variety of, of uh, fairly familiar accounts of legitimate authority from the domestic context, things like uh, consent and, and fair play. Uh, Rossian uh, instrumental justifications for authority. Um, but my, you know, whereas I think many legal theorists end up being deeply committed, I don't know if it's an intuition or they just find a certain argument so compelling they couldn't possibly abandon it. And so they become a legal positivist or a Dworkinian interpretivist or wherever they end up on, on our spectrum of theoretical positions. And, and that's where they are. And then they're going to go out and do other legal work. But at the end of the day, it's not really going to challenge that fundamental commitment they started with, that they're a legal positive. So they just work out all the other legal questions, philosophical questions, given that commitment. And my own approach is much more to try to work out the best version I can of the various schools. Uh, and because, at least in my own mind, I have yet to work through all of the different implications um, or even the most significant implications of any of the, of the schools that I've investigated, I'm kind of not ready to commit at the end of the day uh, to one uh, position or the other. But of course, in, in specific published works, I can say, well, you know, for purposes of uh, this paper, I'm gonna assume the truth of legal positivism and I'm gonna show that, um, you know, this is the best account of law's authority given, given legal uh, positivism. Um, but I also think that, that because they emphasize different aspects of our experience of law, including international law, um, theories like Hart's uh, positivism or Dworkin's interpretivism can kind of give us different insights, different ways of thinking about the international legal order. And it might be ultimately that we can incorporate some of those insights, which are given kind of greater prominence by one theory or another, um, incorporate some of those insights or some kind of version of those insights, even though we ultimately end up wanting to adopt a rival theoretical perspective for making sense of um, law. And, and I think, you know, the chapter on Dworkin is uh, perhaps a good example of that. So very familiar. Many people have responded to Dworkin's arguments by saying, this isn't a theory of law. This is just a theory of legal interpretation. And in fact, we can take many of the insights that you have advanced for legal interpretation and reconcile them with legal positivism, as long as we distinguish what question are we answering, right? What are the existence conditions for law and what is the content um, or implication of this legal norm for the permissibility of the you know particular conducted issue, uh, and that may well be true. In which case, uh, you know, may, rebutting certain of the criticism, not everyone that's advanced uh, against Dworkin's view on international law, but some of them um, may at least save Dworkin as an interpretive uh, approach. Um, on the other hand, uh, if we assume Dworkin's got a going theory of law. I do want to try to argue that as of yet, I'm not convinced by any of the critiques that address specifically his extension of that theory to international law. Very interesting. So you think that somewhere deep, Dworkin and Hart are compatible, at least as long as international law is the subject of discussion? Well, I want to say that there are certain elements of the two views um, that you could take an element, right? So here's an example. So uh, my work on Hart's take on international law um, reads Hart to say something that in fact, 
I think many international lawyers would accept, uh, which is that international law um, by and large does without specialization in the performance of governance tasks, right? Specialization in lawmaking and law application and law enforcement. Right? And once you put it that way and step back from you know, the way that Hart presents it, again, I don't think that that is an especially controversial claim. So Dworkin, as I read him, thinks that uh, the key idea for understanding law is the idea of government in accordance with the rule of law. And so then the question is, well, what conditions need to be satisfied in order for uh, a practice of government to be one that is in accordance with the rule of law? And it may turn out, and this is a question I pursue in the book and, and in greater detail elsewhere, it may turn out that government in accordance with the rule of law requires certain kinds of institutions. And then that brings us back to Hart's argument about the nature of international law or as a legal system focusing on its specialization in, in the performance of governance tasks. So that might be a place in which we could kind of draw on ideas from the two theorists in ways that would be complementary. Um, but if we then want to go on and have a debate about, yes, but is it law, right? Well, then maybe we end up having to, you know, make a choice between them. So uh, no, I don't want. I don't think there's any magic at the end of the day that somehow makes them fully compatible, uh, you know, theorists. If we go back to Hart for a second, um, our podcast is called Borderline Jurisprudence as a nod to Hart, who taught international law to be a borderline case of law, and this idea has largely informed jurisprudential investigations into its nature, or rather, the lack thereof. Uh, do you think this is true, that international law is in some way borderline? Yeah, it's a good question. So my first inclination is to resist categorization for categorization's sake, right? So to say, well, so well, here's the project. Let's figure out what law is, and then let's go out and look at various things in the world and decide, are they on the law side of the line or on the non-law side of the line? Uh, or are they right there on the line, you know, a borderline example? Um, but it's not to say that there aren't lots of interesting questions of this sort that, that we can ask. Uh, and in fact, that's the way I frame the discussion in the first half of the book. So I, I frame it as a, a response to the international legal skeptic. Uh, and you, raise, you, you say something like, but is international law really law? And you can watch the eyes roll in every international legal theorist and a fair number of legal philosophers because they think you're, you're, you're interested in this kind of metaphysical you know, regimenting of the universe that just at, at the end of the day is not that interesting. Um, but that's not really the question I, I'm asking because I think that skepticism arises from a practical standpoint. When somebody says, but it's not really law, it's because they think that something turns on the question of whether it's law for practical reason, for what the what they ought to do, for what is permissible, for what is forbidden, uh, and so on. And, and so I kind of like Hart does actually in the introduction to concept of law. I say that well, the right response to the skeptic is to say, well, what exactly is it that is underlying the skepticism? What is your real concern here? And then that might turn out to be a concern about enforcement, or it might be a concern about institutionalization, or it might be a concern about the rule of law. And so then we can go and explore those particular questions and what their implications are for what various actors ought to do. Right? And if we've done all that, and then there's still someone in the back of the room who raises her hand and says, yes, but is it law? <laughs> you know, at that point, I, I'm not sure I'm that concerned if we've, all, you know, if we've talked about all these other questions. So 
what would I want to say about international law as being borderline? Well, I'd want to say something like um, institutionally, it involves much less specialization in the performance of governance tasks than, do, than a well-functioning modern state. Uh, I, that's not very controversial, I think. Uh, and um, does that then make it a borderline example of law? I, if we want to define legal system in such a way that it's linked to institutionalization, then we can say yes. But really, what's much more interesting to say is, well, what are the implications of the relatively horizontal nature of the international legal order for its ability to contribute to the production of social order? And there, I think we want to be careful not to make any presumptions that could be made if you were saying, well, is it a borderline case of law? Uh, like a presumption that says, well, um, it would be better if it involved more institutionalization. Uh, so Hart actually makes this observation in passing in chapter 10 of Concept of Law. He says, look, let's, let's not assume that it's more desirable, morally or otherwise, that we should have uh, more systematicity of the type he's interested in, in international law. That might be good in some ways, and in other ways, a world state might be terrifying. Um, so that, but whether that is so and what it needs to look like needs to be worked out in detail. Should not be presumed that you know more legal system is is always better. Uh, I think also if you look to say legitimate authority, we might be able to say, well, suppose you think Roz offers a correct account of law's legitimate authority. Uh, you might then conclude um, that more legal norms enjoy legitimate authority over more actors in a moderately well-functioning liberal democratic state, like let's say the Netherlands, right? Um, then is true of international law vis-a-vis -vis its legal subjects. Right. So again, if you wanted to say, well, law is, right, the more legitimate authority law enjoys, so the more legal norms enjoy Rossian instrumental authority over more act over more of the actors they claim jurisdiction over the more law you have then yes i think you could then say well international law is more a borderline case of law and then we could kind of have the the uh, ext opposite extreme which would be a putative legal order right so think of the most kind of corrupt and uh um terrible state you can right now and say well it's still going to be claiming authority again we're working within a rosian framework is still going to be claiming authority on behalf of law, but in fact, it's hardly ever going to enjoy legitimate authority. And then we could say, well, that's a kind of extreme case of not non-law, but non-legitimate uh, law. And then one more time, we could run this with the rule of law and say, you know, to what extent is the practice of government in a particular society um, satisfy the conditions for the rule of law? And given that that's a scalar concept, we could put a bunch of different practices of government on us on that scale. And perhaps we'd have international law somewhere in the middle between, again, terribly corrupt uh, societies that show no fidelity to the rule of law, and then whatever our best current version of a, of a well-functioning modern state that, that does a good job of satisfying the rule of law. So I have a jumbo follow-up to that, basically. Yeah. Um, so if international law is not a borderline case, then why has it been largely ignored by jurisprudence for so long? And do you think international law can or should inform the way we think about law as such? And um, would you say that philosophy of international law uh, 
has already or should have a separate agenda uh, than general jurisprudence or could be a branch of it? Right, good questions. So I think the um, explanation for why international law has not received much attention um, is partly just uh, the, um, I don't wanna say lack of development, but the, but the kind of uh, the features of international law that were present up until the end of the uh, Cold War um, were not, I think, sufficiently attractive for many legal philosophers to engage with. Um, I think it's probably a lot of sociology. I have academia that's going on as well. I mean, even in, forget philosophers, even in law school, law schools, um, international lawyers were very much a marginal group, right? And so it can be as simple as things like, what do students want to study? Where is grant money flowing to, right? So that could explain why, um, you know, historically not as much attention um, was paid. In terms of, of how we should think about philosophy of international law now, I am in favor of thinking of it uh, largely as a part of general jurisprudence, um, but with one caveat. So um, there are some people who have argued that uh, we need a distinctive concept of the rule of law for the international order, um, distinctive from the one that would be um, appropriate for theorizing domestic legal orders of modern states. Uh, I'm not persuaded by that. There's a lot of uh, talking past one another that goes on there uh, because people aren't using the rule of law to actually even describe the same kind of phenomenon or set of values. Um, but I am I'm generally skeptical of the need to introduce kind of distinctive concepts of things like legitimacy, rule of law, and so on um, uh, to theorize international law. Um, I do think engaging with international law may drive us to revisit some of the conclusions we have previously drawn about the nature of the rule of law or legitimacy uh, or so on. So broadening our perspectives in terms of the legal orders we're keeping in mind as we try to develop these concepts um, can helpfully identify maybe certain parochial elements of, uh, of, our, of our conceptual understanding up to this point. Uh, I'm not sure I have yet seen an example that makes me think we need to radically rethink uh, some of our uh, concepts. Uh, but but I, I do think that it raises uh, um, questions um, that, you know, that, that do challenge assumptions, say assumptions about um, um, whether we need certain kinds of institutions um, in order to have uh, in order to have law. Do we need, for example, uh, a centralized uh, means of enforcement and specialization and enforcement in order to have uh, a legal order. So now my, my caveat is that when it comes to general jurisprudential questions, I think we have just one agenda, but one that is strengthened by attention to international law um, and also other kinds of non-state law. I should, I should just mention that. Um, but the caveat is that when we look at specific international legal regimes like international criminal law um, or international human rights law, there I think the context may be different enough that they do warrant uh, their own agenda. Um, that's not to say that there isn't uh, possibilities for fruitful cross-fertilization and thinking about the insights of criminal law theory in a domestic context for an international context. But at the same time, I do think that we're talking about a different enough setting. Uh, and again, get pointing back to things like institutionalization um, and diversity of values and interests, um, where uh, 
philosophical investigation of those regimes may be best undertaken more or less on its own terms, right? Then instead of kind of just an extension of familiar ideas from the domestic context. So, so I actually have a follow up right on that. Uh, so going back to to your book and its structure. So in the second half of it, you discuss extensively these different regimes like international law and human rights, use of bellum, international criminal law, international trade law, but you do not touch upon many more traditional or classic jurisprudential questions about international law, such like its sources, interpretation, normative hierarchy, and so on. It is, of course, obvious from the title of your book, and you also mentioned that in the introduction, that it's also only an introduction uh, to philosophy and international law. But still, this begs the question, do you think that these issues are less informative or indicative of philosophical aspects of international law than those you choose to examine? Yes, good question. So uh, I can answer the, the last question uh, easily and just say no. <laughs> uh, I certainly don't mean to imply that they are, uh, you know, inferior questions or, or of less interest. Um, you know, I've got very pragmatic uh, explanations for what's in the book and what's not. That They only gave me so many pages and I'm trying to draw in many different people who may have, you know, different interests, different reasons to be attracted to the field. Um, and, you know, here are a parochial note, um, two, two parochial notes. The first is I wanted to write the book in such a way that it could be used by um, faculty at American universities who are teaching a philosophy of law course. And because many of them, certainly not all, but many of them, when they do do general jurisprudence, jurisprudence they talk about Austin, they talk about Hart, they talk about Dworkin, they maybe do the legitimate authority, consent, fair play. So I wanted to write a book that could easily slide into the way they approach teaching philosophy of law. Of course, that's not the way that it is approached everywhere. Um, the other parochial feature is that, uh, you know, in many parts of the world, when you go to university, you would just study law. And so many of the students who would take a philosophy of law or philosophy of international law course would have already had an international law course. But that's not true of American uh, students. American students don't study law uh, until a postgraduate uh, degree. So again, uh, just thinking about the likely students was a, was a factor here. In terms of those uh, topics, I actually, when I proposed the book, there was a whole chapter on customary international law. Uh, and that's partly because it's something I've written on and I find fascinating, um, but also because I thought not only was it of interest in itself as a topic in uh, international legal theory, uh, but because I thought it might give further insight, I think it does give further insight into thinking about Hart's account of law, and in particular, the nature of a rule of recognition, thinking of that rule here, not in fact as a general, uh, a genuine rule, but rather as a social practice, um, which provides the ontological underpinnings uh, for the existence of law, uh, or legal, the existence of legal norms. Uh, so that was on the agenda, uh, but unfortunately it, it got left on the cutting room floor. Uh, interpretation absolutely uh, is critical and is another topic that um, I would love to have added um, to the book. Uh, the Dworkin, of course, does point in that direction, but it's certainly not uh, in any way a sufficient um, treatment. Uh, normative hierarchy, I think philosophers spend way too much time on Yus Kogan's norms. And so um, I would love to discourage uh, philosophers from uh, spending so much time on Yus, uh, Yus Kogan's uh, norms. I, I think partly they don't understand them very well, but, but even so, uh, setting that aside, there just aren't that many 
uh, right now. And the temptation, especially amongst philosophers to say effectively, it would be good if this were a Yuskogan's norms. Therefore it is a Yuskogan's norms. Uh, you know, that, that temptation needs to be uh, uh, removed from the table. Uh, but on the other hand, thinking of, of, I think one of the major issues where we're dealing with right now in, in international law is the techniques that international actors are developing to avoid normative conflicts uh, between different regimes, international human rights law and uh, law of armed conflict um, or international trade law and inter international environmental law. Um, there was the whole fragmentation uh, kerfluffle uh, and now a lot of people are saying, well, you know, that was a, a big nothing, right? We seem to be doing all right. Um, but I think it's worth thinking through exactly why we're doing all right um, and whether that's uh, stable. And in fact, whether the resolution or avoidance of those problems has been dealt with within the confines of law and legal concepts or uh, politics. Uh, and it might be okay if it's been done with politics rather than law, but I think that's an issue um, worth paying attention to. So if I were gonna think about norms, it would be, I would be less interested in writing a paper or including a chapter on a normative hierarchy than um, thinking more deeply about uh, legal pluralism and conflicts of norms and conflict avoidance by uh, international courts and, and so on. Oh, and I have to say, it's shameful that I don't have a chapter on Kelson in this book, but there you go. <laughs> I think those who know me will find this particularly amusing because I have a vendetta against Kelson. Uh, <laughs> so this might come as a... <laughs> oh, yeah, I will uh, refrain from commenting further. Um, <laughs> well, he should be there, even if he should be there only so we can say, and here's all the ways he was mistaken. Right? Oh, yeah, I could I could live with that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Um, so as this is our first episode and we have the honor and pleasure of having you with us, we want to cheat a little bit. Um, what do you think are the biggest issues in philosophy of international today? What are the burning questions, the topics that we should tackle? Good. Uh, so I think the starting point is actually substantive uh, questions of uh, justice that are um, um, very pressing globally. Uh, and so this maybe speaks in some way more to the second half of the book um, than the first half on general jurisprudence, but um, topics like uh, migration uh, and uh, cybersecurity and vulnerability, um, environmental problems, uh, certainly of course, including climate change, but not limited to it. Um, uh, I'm trying to think what other topics here. Oh, right, nuclear arms control, um, which is personally terrifying the developments that we've we've seen in the past few years uh, and of course pandemics we can't we can't leave that out uh, and on top of that having to think about how to uh, meet all these pro problems all these challenges and the extent to which international law can uh, enable us to do so we have to theorize it in an increasingly multipolar world um, that's characterized by uh, China's rise and China's conception of uh, international relations and of international law its influence within various international institutions. Uh, and paired with that, um, my, I will personally say, sad to say, uh, the United States increasing withdrawal from um, its role, of course, not always good, but still its role in international law uh, and international affairs. Uh, I think, again, from my standpoint, fortunately, the change in administration has made that 
not as radical a withdrawal. Uh, and yet, I, I think we are still going to see in various ways, for example, um, in terms of trade uh, and perhaps also international migration, uh, we're going to see an America that is less engaged with multilateral uh, and international legal efforts to, to address those problems. So, you know, this kind of the world events that I think are, are going to be most pressing and drive us. And as we try to think through how to address them, we will inevitably have to take up these questions of general jurisprudence. Um, so China's rise, I think, forces us to confront again uh, the distinction between rule of law and rule by law and uh, to think through um, what exactly those two mean. I'm actually interested in possibilities of transition from rule by law to rule of law. So to illustrate um, my take on the dispute settlement uh, body of the World Trade Organization is that is the economic analysis. I think it's an example of rule by law. Right? But what I wonder is whether having actors engage in this kind of practice, even if it starts out being one that is informed by, the, by an understanding of rule by law, Right, so uh, enabling uh, actors to find mutually beneficial terms of engagement given their own interests and relative power. Whether having a system in place that involves things that look a lot like a court, for example, and compelling actors to have to make certain kinds of arguments in favor of the solutions to their disputes that they want, might somehow, I'm not exactly sure how this works, but somehow transition us into a system of rule by law that we might surreptitiously by having certain kind of institutional models and certain types of argumentative models actually introduce a whole entirely different conception of how government is to be exercised, at least in this particular uh, domain. So, the last thing I would say is, you know, you've mentioned a couple of times, and I've agreed um, that the previous couple of generations of international legal theorists and philosophers—sorry, I should say legal philosophers—had very little to say about international law, and because of that, they have left the field almost entirely clear for us and for everyone who wants to come in after us, right, to take up all these questions, right, and to say, well. All this debate about legal positivism has taken place against the background assumption of a well-functioning modern state, and in fact, even a particular kind of well-functioning modern state. Let's go ask all these questions again in the international uh, context. Um, so uh, I think the field is really wide open, uh, and I'm hoping that a lot of people will see that as an opportunity uh, to revisit old questions, uh, perhaps to formulate some, some new questions, uh, and to reach out to a group of, of scholars that we just haven't talked with enough, and those are international legal theorists, um, many of whom I think have, have some really uh, interesting ideas. I also think sometimes some really confused uh, ideas, uh, but that's, that's a great starting point for, I think, fruitful uh, exchange. Yeah, this is an excellent answer. Thank you very much. And we also have a couple of questions that are a little more spontaneous, I might say. Uh, and um, more personal, perhaps. Uh, so the first question is, what drives you to do what you do academically? Uh, I think I'm just concerned with justice. I mean, you know, this is a pretty, uh, on the one hand, I want to say, I want to see justice done. Uh, now, on the one hand, 
my contribution to that effort is in some ways very removed from the effort of, of seeing justice done. Uh, and I hope that I make some marginal contribution, most especially in the form of teaching uh, my students uh, directly and others that I can reach out to through my writings if they're shared, say, in other, uh, in other classes. Um, but when I take up the questions uh, in the morning and I put them down at the end of the day, I always am trying to think about the people whose lives are at stake. Um, so that is a kind of my, my root uh, motivation, um, but there's also a part of me that just loves ideas. And so uh, sometimes I just get really wrapped up in trying to work out an idea. And it's really an artistic uh, experience. Uh, it's the creation of, of something, writing incredibly painful uh, activity, but also moments of kind of sheer ecstasy of, of beauty, of thinking, this is it, I figured it out. Uh, typically those don't last long. Somebody comes along and shows me why it's mistaken, but still, uh, you know, there's also just that kind of aesthetic undertaking of creation uh, that, that drives me. Yeah, so you mentioned that uh, writing is hard and it's also painful. And, and that comes my second question. Is this the only thing that you struggle with or are there others apart from writing? Yeah. Um, you know, I said earlier that I, I like to kind of remain in, to some degree uncommitted on which account of law and where that's, uh, where that's a broad category, not just validity, legal validity, but also authority and the rule of law, the whole picture right, of, of law. Uh, and I, I, I like to remain somewhat uncommitted, but sometimes that also is kind of a source of frustration for me where I feel like I can see all the reasons why this is compelling, but I can also see all the reasons why this is compelling. They're not compatible. There's not a way to make this all work together. Uh, and so that sense of uh, not being able to figure out in a way that I can kind of truly commit to and say, yes, um, this, is, this is the right answer. Uh, certainly that can be frustrating at times. I think the other thing I struggle with is I just don't have enough time. There's so much wonderful work to read, so many wonderful people to listen to and to talk to. I wish I knew more about international, like doctrinal international law. I mean, I wish I could just read the legal materials volumes that are put out by the American Society of International Law. Uh, so I, I constantly struggle, this is I'm sure widely shared, but I constantly struggle with just not having enough time to do justice to all the wonderful things that are out there. And the final question is perhaps the most insidious one. Is there a particular book or an article that you think everyone should read? Yes. So, so I, I am going to take the easy way out here. Uh, but I think it's true. I mean, I, I think Hart's concept of law is just a fantastic, fantastic book. Uh, and it's perfectly fine if at the end of the day, you think it is riddled with errors. But um, there are so many great insights, I think. And there are so many wonderful starting points for further exploration. Uh, and I, I just find it a really accessible uh, book. Um, it has held up, I think, really quite well. 
Um, you do have to occasionally uh, explain a, a mid 20th century uh, British reference to uh, 21st century American students, but uh, but by and large, they're they're able to follow it. Um, and I'm always impressed with how well they understand it. So I'll teach the first, say, four or five chapters. And then as a paper assignment, I'll send my students out to write a paper on the 10th chapter, the chapter on international law. I said, OK, you read Hart's take on law in the first four or five chapters. Now, go tell me what he's doing in chapter 10. And their ability to come back with many very accurate uh, readings, I think, really owes to how clear, in general, uh, Hart is uh, in the concept of law. So, so yes, if you only had one book, that would be the one. David Levkovitz, thank you very much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure. Again, I am so thrilled that you guys are, are taking on this project and that you are finding philosophy of international law uh, an area that's worth exploring. And I, I just hope that uh, many others will follow you into the field.